welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. This is the first episode of season four of Writing the Coast. This season, I'll be talking to the finalists of the 2022 BC and Yukon Book Prizes. Now, if you haven't seen this year's shortlist, you should. They're amazing. There are so many great books on these lists, and you can find all of them on our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. But let's get into this episode. Here is my guest to introduce herself. My name is Isabella Wang, and I am the author of the chapbook on Forgetting a Language, and Pebble Swing is my full-length debut that came out with Nightwood Editions just under a year ago now. I am a student at Simon Fraser University. I'm just finishing up my degree in English and World Lit. Well, I am an editor with Room, and I love my job there. And the other thing that I really love is working with Vancouver Poetry House um, as a poet who sometimes visits um, high schools and works with high school students, giving them workshops or, you know, other um, poetry experiences. And I just really love that because high school was kind of where I started. Isabella's book, Pebble Swing, is a finalist for the 2022 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. In our conversation, we talked about what it means to write about place, as well as Isabella's feelings about imposter syndrome, and what it means to be in conversation with other writers. Isabella starts our conversation with a reading from Pebble Swing. I'm going to read a few random excerpts from 13 Anti-Hustles after Phyllis Webb because um, I think it's been around five months since we lost her, but I've been thinking about her a lot these days. One, I didn't know the poet then. A friend back from Salt Spring Island told me she dropped off some books to Phyllis Webb. Phyllis, do you feel the world transforming? This era of digital uniformity, pig-human hybridity, in some parts of the world, they're breeding monkeys with two heads. One kitten whisker in a vault somewhere. I had forgotten the combination. How else to respond but to write as web? I opened a new deck of index cards. Blue, pink, yellow. Phyllis, did you write them on the front side or the back? 62 couplets at sundown and 62 variations of the same couplet, the last rainfall till September. I get out of the rose garden to tend to a less spiky bed of thorns. The day hasn't got enough hours for all the poems to greet the sun, I assume. The blackberry bush hides in a front of blackbirds. The shovel breaks for midday beer. Art is perceived by the senses in multiple dimensions. Rainfalls falling. I've spent all morning trying to sound out wah with a single intake of breath. 
a line breaks off and reconnects, or it breaks off indefinitely. Phyllis, I've poured myself, the sun, and myself to you. I needn't a cassette player in this day and age, Phyllis, except to hear you. The turning of leaves into yellow, fall splits the tree in half. October's last pollinators line up for pumpkin spice honey. Wa, try writing a hustle without pronouns. At dawn, all the world's insect workers spin cocoons over Reese's fiction. The poet refrains from writing, takes a sejura. Saltine and pears crumble. Thank you for that reading, Isabella. I want to start with a weird question. It's not at all related to Pebble Swing, but if you could read or watch one book or movie or TV show for the rest of your life, which would it be and why? Mm. I kind of fell in love with um, Richard, Richard Wagamese's Indian Horse. And um, I and I think the movie came out a few years ago, kind of in memory of Richard Wagamese, whose, oh my God, whose yeah, words is just incredible. Like I've read his memoir and Indian Horse is actually the first novel I've read of his but it is my favorite. And it starts with a boy in, um, his name is Salt Indian Horse, who um, grew up with his family kind of in their territory called God's Lake. And eventually the losses he experienced after both the personal and intergenerational effects of residential schools. I think his gift for hockey and also like his just unreal gift for being able to see the game as a kind of art and craft. And also the gift that I think hockey gave to him as an escape until the racism he and exclusion he experienced um, in his more professional career with hockey kind of made, you know, that escape impossible for him. And just that, you know, that story, you know, um, telling the story as a way of just coming to terms, a way to learn how to grieve and come to terms with, you know, where you are now and how to move on. And especially the ending, the voyage, the act of making a voyage back to the places of the past, places that hurt, but also, um, but also taught you how to grow and taught you everything, you know, in those early years, just the act of making a return. I love the line at the end. Um, sometimes when you when I'm paraphrasing, but sometimes when you miss something, the only thing that can replace it is the thing itself. Hence the importance of going back to those places, which really resonated with me because recently there's been, I've been 
missing a lot of places that I stayed at over the past year after following several moves and I just really miss those places and when I read those books I kind of went on a journey of my own just making that to our best ride to those places that I just needed to feel again um and yeah the movie I'm actually watching it really really slowly because it's the only way I can um keep up with it actually but yeah I'd read that book all over again yeah it's one of those books that like it's like one of those kids books where you open the flaps and mm-hmm. and something new is revealed it kind of feels yeah. like one of those for adults and the language too i mean richard wagamese like just like how saul has that gift for hockey right richard wagamese has this gift for storytelling that he kind of also gifts to the narrator saul but the, the like it's a novel but the, it's just so poetic like mm-hmm. so poetic. Yeah. Beautiful. I want, I'm now like collecting my thoughts to know where to start because I feel like we could spin off of that for a little bit too. Um, and maybe yeah. we will because I wanted to talk to you about place and, and how you write about place because you really, you you took us to so many places in your collection and it did feel like there was a real mm-hmm. kind of longing and and grief and missing of places in the collection and I wondered how you how you navigate writing about place because sometimes it's just setting but sometimes it felt much bigger than that like almost like a character or someone you were writing to yeah I mean part of it is as a poet I'm so inspired by place stories I see based on where I am just place kind of as this calming factor for me. I take a lot in from place. But that said, I have moved um, like around the time of writing the book, right? And up to now I moved like 20 times in the past three years, just in every city um, within proximity to Vancouver, you can imagine. And so part of it is because I'm so influenced by setting, you kind of get a lot of different places that I'm riding into just based on where I'm moving to and from. And, you know, like I tell people, I've, you know, lived in so many cities, but I think the one common factor among all of them is that at all times I am on, you know, traditional, unceded, and ancestral indigenous land unsurrendered land that you know at times when family is impossible at times when I can't even get a roof over my head that land has supported me and has been grounding for me and made things okay and so yeah I think it goes both ways at times when you know, things are just kind of unstable and it's hard to get a sense of routine just because routines are changing so much. I draw a lot from, I think, the one thing that kind of stays, well, kind of gives me a sense of grounding where, you know, I can just go into the woods or go to the water or take 
I walk along the street based on where I am. And oftentimes I start if like, you know, inside, like in terms of like what people would call a home that's really unconstant. I turn the poetry outward and I do, you know, form a relationship to water with um, the place, with the city over time. And, and that's something that's grown and accumulated in the book. And often I am writing and reflecting back on those times, kind of already moved up to another place, but those, you know, sentiments, that long, that nostalgia kind of carries with you forever. And so even if you move physically, you know, that time of living somewhere, it never really leaves you. I love the you talking about turning the poetry outwards and it kind of fits with that image of the pebbles and the ripples going out, which yeah. seemed so like, I love that visual, but it kind of like resonated throughout the collection quite a bit, like in terms mm-hmm. of even like language and, um, and just like sound waves and also just the way it felt like there were things so, so small and specific in, but it had this like real resonance. And, and I would love to hear more about the title of the book from you, but also why that was such an important kind of image as you were creating the collection. Thank you. Um, It's kind of interesting, like every time this is brought up, because when it came to the discussion of cover designs for the book, I was asked to offer some ideas and I said that it's important to me that um, the book shows some form of, you know, that image of a pebble being tossed into the water and kind of making these reverberations, kind of rock skipping. And I said that because there, it is easy and there has been times when the title has been interpreted in a more, I think, literal way that is a swing made out of pebbles which I think would be kind of fun actually but you know pebble swing that like rock skipping that was the initial image that came up for me when I was writing the title poem pebble swing to my friend Natalie Lim and um so I wanted that to be featured on the cover kind of just to clarify some things and interpretations you can make with a book. Um, And I don't know how I got the image, but I like stones, I like pebbles, I like the water. And when I picture rocks being skipped across the water, it's kind of, it just kind of came as an, like an almost a perfect metaphor for that sense of the things that matter that sometimes you have to toss out into in your life, you know, in terms of hope, hope, tossing something out or something being tossed out or lost that you have no control over on something you can never kind of retreat back, but also that sense of you know syllables bouncing off of the reflection of water of imagery that echoes memories 
senses of belonging, identity that echoes, but with each kind of like whirlpool of water, it's never quite the same. And so a lot about that image kind of spoke to me and it felt right. I mentioned earlier that I, I loved all the food in your poems yeah. and, and I wanted to ask you about that because it as I was reading it, it made me think of something that um, Danny Ramadan said to me last year when I interviewed him about um, Salma, the Syrian chef, and about mm -hmm. food as connection to place, but how particularly for those who've uh, come from elsewhere, it's a real, it's like a piece of home that you can carry with you and recreate in a way that you can't with many other things. And so I wanted to ask you about writing about food and, and why that is a detail that's important to you to include. I think it's food is almost like pieces of found poems or inspiration. It, they just, again, they're like um, an inspiration point, a leaping point. Um, and I think because regardless of whether it's cuisine I grew up with or cuisine I kind of love, grew to love since immigrating, um, I think they're just part of my life, part of the sense of place and stories of our identities that are just so embedded in the everyday for me. I think in the book, food kind of speaks to, you know, senses of cultural, the loss of cultural identity, of other forms of grieving, but also at times a gift, something as simple as just a garden when you have access to it is you know really special and you know it's clear that they made an impact for me because I wrote them into my poetry I was aware of the sadness and grief I felt while being in proximity to certain foods or certain smells or you know certain meals being prepared and a joy and thankfulness and gratefulness while immersed in other, around other um, dishes or, you know, gardens or plants. So, yeah. Food is such an evocative, like, it's such a thing that evokes memory um, mm -hmm. in a way that I don't think anything else really does. Like, we can taste no. something and it imme immediately carries us back to a moment when we first tasted that or yeah. enjoyed it with others. Yeah, my cat likes food, too. He won't stop stealing my bread. <laughs> He's here, by the way, on the screen for our listeners. A cat after my own heart. I love no. bread. I would be stealing bread, too. I, you you were talking about grief, and I wanted to ask you about your process of writing through grief and writing about grief, because I think this is a thing that um, impacts writers differently at different times of their process, too. Sometimes it's very useful to write through grief. Other times we just can't. What is that like for you? Sometimes it's there have it's. I mean, I think grief is kind of the sentient being for me where it has been through like a recent phase of just different forms of grief. It's like always there and it's 
it's not really a ghost either because it's just like nothing about it has passed it's just alive as much as the present is and yet it comes in so many forms I think grief is almost like a kinder egg surprise on a week-to-week level it just affects you so differently and so it has affected my poetry differently I think there's been times when we go through periods of loss and you're like I'm never going to be able to write poetry again because it's just so immense but something about that time when at least in my experience grief kind of takes you like the level of grief you experience kind of accelerates to almost a spiritual level and in that space you can only write poetry by like the lyric poetry day in and day out I guess it's my it was and that helped me and that was like my way of processing a lot of things and then there's other times where you know you can't really do much in this presence of grief and space of it except just be sometimes when you think when you kind of when you've kind of accepted that there's this longing real longing to get a few words out to write poetry because that's always been a source of comfort for you but just knowing that you know all the words are not going to come out until you've kind of processed a little bit of this or just taking your time and let time do some of the work while you just sit and maybe read work by others but then at least I know that writing is impossible and forcing yourself to write in that time then is kind of irresponsible um, beyond what you can do. So, yeah. I I wanted to ask you, you talked about um, reading the work of others, especially mm-hmm. in that, that space where you can't write. And at many points in the collection, you write poems for other people or you mention other people's work. Um, like you write to Phyllis and, and Leanne Dunick is mentioned in one poem as well. Yeah. And I wondered what it means for you to be in conversation with other poets and writers and creative people in your work. I think it's a form, a way of honoring and also acknowledging the real people and real poets who are, again, really embedded in my sense of place and community, um, who are actively offering me, right, the gift of my own voice and my own poetry through their writing, teaching me something or offering me a trajectory that I don't think I would have been able to arrive at by my own, offering that me that, you know, path when I feel really stuck. And so it's a part of my natural process in that when I write often, I have like a line or two swirling in my head and I can't really get it down on paper until some time has passed until I have a sense of where I want to go or what form I want to try out with those lines. And in the same way, there's often lines of um, poetry or just really beautiful phrases by other writers that are, again, 
you know, I carry with me. And oftentimes I just feel myself thinking about them or responding to them naturally in my head. And oftentimes those do materialize on paper. There are times where, you know, there's a lot of influential people in my life that I kind of just want to write poems as letters or little gifts for. And sometimes you think you're going to write a poem for this person because you really want to. And then um, you finally do, but it's been two years. Um, there's been times like that. Um, my second collection that I'm working on right now, it's like every single poem. There, so there's like sequences of li- um, like lyric sequences. That's just um, a few pages of long poems. But aside from that, the individual poems, those are almost every single one of them are dedicated to someone in that collection. I wanted to um, to talk a little bit about Phyllis, uh, mm-hmm. but also I wanted to ask you, it, I'm going to ask you to pronounce it again for me, but is it Hazal? The yeah. Hazal? Yeah. Okay. That's pretty good. <laughs> How do you pronounce it? Hazal. Hazal? Yeah. Okay. I wanted I wanted to ask you about that form because I hadn't I'm not a poet so maybe it's widely known but I hadn't heard of it before. Why were you drawn to the Hazel and why did you want to include it in your collection because it it appears every several times mm-hmm. including the uh, anti Hazel for films. Yeah. I think definitely the traditional Hazel that originated um in 10th century Iran and may kind of traveled its way here, that is much more widely known than like the more um, postmodern anti-Hazals that John Thompson, Adrian Richmond, Patrick Lane, um, Phyllis all kind of um, innovated upon. Um, the Hazal is written in a series of couplets. It the first couplet introduces a pair of end rhymes that is repeated at the end of every second li- every second line in the, the couplet, and because there are no um, there's no correlation in terms of theme and topic between each of the lines, each line is kind of given this extra expectation to perform as a poem, complete poem in its own right. And it's a beautiful form, lyrical and sung in a lot of cultures. And I think that is what drew drew poets to it naturally. It's lyricality. It's just all of its different um, elements that kind of forms it together. And a lot of postmodern poets kind of broke the form, kind of riding through it in their own way and own hybridity, in part owing, um, in part offering tribute and acknowledgement to this form that has influenced them, but also, you know, not claiming too much of a form that has a very distinctive and different ancestral history. And I think Phyllis is one of the first to really take a more feminist, more radical approach in innovating it, kind of focusing it from um, topics that are more universal and grandiose and mystical 
to just the small to the small joys of the everyday. But in those spaces, again, turning what might be appeared to be mundane, what might be overlooked in the everyday, into something so astounding, into their own kind of um, unique and nuanced poetry. And so I started writing in response to her in um, Stephen Collis's poetry class that um, taught Fred Watt and Phyllis in concert with one another. And for my journal project, I was we were you know getting to the chapter where we were reading Phyllis's book Water and Light, the Anti Hustles, and it was a really really challenging collection. Just because I had been introduced to the form of the hustle by my poetry mentor Rob Taylor years ago in the traditional form, but what she had done was such a step away from that that I didn't know how to read it at first. And so, in her preface, she wrote about how it was introduced by to her by her friend Michael Andaje, and so she kind of, in order to get to know the form better, she challenged herself to write a poem a day on the back of index cards. And so I thought, you know, how else to respond but to write as well. So I kind of started doing the same thing, writing a hustle a day, and mine started. And the traditional form that I was more familiar with in the book, and then over time, as I got to know her work better, I was able to respond to her directly a bit, a bit better. Um, and it was just a form that really challenged me, and one that I really loved. Um, similar to the Sistina that I'm working with right now, just a form that for so long I thought was so difficult, until. You kind of again. It's like it's like getting to know a friend. You get to know it a bit better, and then you start to work with it. I I've taken some poetry classes. I took some with Shaleen Knight, and I I found that yeah. I'm I'm like the rebel, and I want to break all the forms, and I find them interesting, yeah. but I don't really want to follow it. But I think mm-hmm. it's what I learned with time is like it's important to understand how they all work and to do it the way they're supposed to be so that when you try to do something different and flip it on its head, you can kind of, yeah. Yeah. I have, I have huge respect for you and the poets who do it so well. (laughs) Thank you. It means a lot. I wanted to ask you uh, one last question, if I may. Of course. Something I really connected to in the book was there was a moment when you spoke about having to go do a reading and that you, you, how could you call yourself a poet when (laughs) you hadn't written a poem? I forget how long you had said in the piece, but I, I wanted to ask you about imposter syndrome and how you deal with that. I know there's a lot of, I know poets in my life and, and authors who've published books and there's some, for some of them, something happens after that first collection comes out where you can't write for whatever reason. And I wondered if you could talk about your experience and how you deal with imposter syndrome. Yeah, I mean, like, I like to joke about this, but, um, like, I know a lot of my profs in the English and Wallet department really well. So sometimes we get kind of um, jokey and roast each other. 
um, but sometimes I'd go to office hours um, to get my prop to look over something I wrote and give his feedback on it. And while he's reading over there, I'm like, is it trash? Please tell me it's, please don't tell, please tell me it's not trash or something. And he was, he's just like grinning, grinning and joking, being like, yeah, it's trash. Get in the trash now. And he don't expect me to do it, but then I just get into his trash can and he's like, get out of there. But it's like, I feel like that all the time. It's like, um, yeah, your own, I don't know. Like, yeah, I think partly that's why, at least for me, why I keep producing new work is that it's not that I don't like my work anymore after I write it, but once a poem is out there, I just kind of go back to this space of, um, I don't know, just me and feeling kind of almost empty and numb until I write the next poem. I think that's kind of the poet's urge. It's when you start the writing process, it's comforting, it's nice getting to work with and revise something but when you're kind of stuck and I'm definitely one of those writers who go for a long time without writing and then write again it's 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 taken like many years of just learning to trust yourself that no matter how long you don't end up being able to write you know it's okay maybe you're burnt out maybe you're tired Maybe you're going through something, and that's okay. I'm just trusting that the words will come. But no, I, I get imposter syndrome a lot. And I'm glad that I have a lot of mentors and profs and friends who offer me a lot of reassurance because I'm always, like, joking about how I'm trash or recycling if they say I'm not trash. Yeah. <laughs> I think writing is one of the... I was talking to my dad about this recently and cause he's a, he's a visual paint, he paints and he's was saying, you know, like writing is so different. Like painters can just paint and they could have yeah. an art show in, you know, their garage if they wanted yeah. to like the, the, there's no kind of barrier in the same way that writers, you know, we have to, to be published, we have to go to other people and have them kind of validate our work. And it's such a, terrifying experience that many other people don't have to go through yeah and then like when you're like going through an illness or something that um like recently for me that kind of impacted your like cognitive and neurological function and you're right it's like I need my brain to do the work I do and it for a while writing anything was impossible so there's also times like that that, you know, writers have to kind of learn to navigate. That was Isabella Wang, author of Pebble Swing. Pebble Swing is a finalist for the 2022 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we have a number of really great in-person and virtual events coming up, and you can find all of the details on our social media and our website. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Ryla Nayibzadeh. 
Ryla's book, Monster Child, is a finalist for the 2022 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize and the 2022 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.